Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is international best-selling author Mike Madden. Mike launched his first critically acclaimed drone series in 2014, And in 2017, Mike's first effort in the Jack Ryan universe, called Tom Clancy Point of Contact, hit number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Last year, he released Tom Clancy Line of Sight to rave reviews and adoration from Clancy fans. And next week, his third Ryan novel, entitled Tom Clancy Enemy Contact, lands at bookstores and an internet near you. Prior to becoming a successful novelist, Mike grew up in California's San Joaquin Valley, earned a PhD in poli-sci, and has extensively studied conflict and technology in international relations. Mike, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm, I'm actually helping my, my 12-year-old nephew write his first book this summer, and uh, he's getting to the point, he's, he's too cool to be impressed with my writing, which really isn't that big of a deal anyway, but I, I'm actually going to bring him along to the signing next week you're doing at the Poison Pen in Scottsdale. And oh, awesome. Yeah, he's he's looking forward to meeting a real-life international bestseller. I, I've already made him promise to hold himself to no more than one question if he gets the chance. No, no, no. Yeah. Put him in the front of the line. I want, I want all of his questions. <laughs> you don't know. 12-year-old boys have, have all the wisdom of the world. I'm reading the ARC copy of Enemy Contact right now, and this, this next novel hooked me from the very first pages, and the opening scenes of this, for me, evoked a lot of memories for me of, of those tense but confident moments of, of writing into expected conflict with my brothers in arms. Um, the public copies of this come out next week, and if my count is right, I think this is the 29th fiction in the Jack Ryan universe. Uh, what do you want readers to know about Enemy Contact and its place in the ongoing Jack Ryan saga? Boy, that's a, a really great question. And yes, um, first and foremost, I think anybody that writes in a thriller genre generally, and certainly in the techno thriller, which I'm writing in, I, you have to doff your hat to Mr. Tom Clancy. Mm-hmm. God rest his soul. He passed in yes. 2013. He almost single-handedly invented the genre, uh, found a way to elevate technology practically to the level of a character Yes. It still made it accessible, but and yet absolutely dead on correct. Um, you know, today, almost any, you know, internet cowboy can look like a, a, <laughs> a whiz-bang genius. Yes. Because uh, you, you can Google everything. Yes. And so, uh, but Tom Clancy was uncovering uh, top secret uh, eyes-only technology uh, apparently at the public library. Yeah, I, I just, he was a genius at, at ferreting things out. And on book tour, I have had the privilege of meeting uh, readers who knew him and also readers who served uh, or are currently serving. And the stories they tell are just laugh out loud funny, but they all sort of boil down to the story of someone walking down uh, a, co- a corridor owned by uh, the federal government reading an excerpt from Mr. Clancy's book and uh, scratching their heads and saying, how in the world could this gentleman possibly know what I'm reading on this page when I was only just authorized to understand it, you know, 10 minutes ago. So just a brilliant guy, brilliant guy. And also just connecting the dots. 
mm-hmm. like any good uh, intelligence analyst. Uh, there's an awful lot out there in, in OSINT, right? Uh, yes. Um, there's a lot in the public domain that is out, out there if you know where to look for it and go find it. Um, but I guess to, to, to answer your question more directly, um, when I was asked to come on board by Tom Colgan, the legendary editor who's been responsible for so many careers and who worked with Tom Clancy for many, many years, when he brought me on board, asked me on board, he said, look, I just have one thing I need to ask you, and that is, please, whatever you do, do not try to imitate Tom Clancy. <laughs> and that was the one thing I was afraid of. You know, if he asked me to try to write in his voice, I'd have turned the job down because you can't yes. imitate an original. No. And so, you know, so then how do you contribute to this thing? Um, you know, the day that Tom called me was probably the greatest day of my literary life because probably like you and many of your listeners, uh, we're all Tom Clancy fans. I mean, the day I read uh, Hunt for October, I, I thought it being gobsmacked. Uh, and then many years later to be asked to actually be part of that series was just an honor that I could hardly fathom until I hung up the phone and realized, yes. but now I have to actually write it. Oh, it suddenly became the most terrifying moment of my literary life uh, yeah. because you just can't put, you can't fit in his shoes. You can't do it. No. And I, you know, I think in uh, my little bit of, of uh, prep work and getting ready to, to talk to you today, uh, we, uh, we have a few common experiences beyond our, our rural upbringing, but one of them is, is that, yeah, Hunt for Red October was, was my entry to thrillers and techno thrillers. And much like you said, he wrote in such an original voice that, you know, I'd never read before, and it was so captivating. You got an education in technology and in, um, you know, all things military that I had never had, never seen, never read before. And it was just so engrossing. It was. And the other thing he did, I thought was just brilliant was he showed the men and women behind that technology. And as far as I can remember, uh, this is the first time, you know, instead of Biff with the ripped pectorals and Mm -hmm. a Tommy gun and, you know, doing sort of that generic GI Joe kind of, comic book action it was real men and women who were calm quiet serious professionals who did their jobs without talking about it without bragging about it they did it for love of country and out of the sense of duty and honor and patriotism and it just really i think elevated the status of military men and women and your younger uh, listeners probably don't remember, but when the Vietnam War was on and after it ended um, and well into the 70s and really even uh, to just about 1980, uh, military careers and military people were held in very low regard. Um, yes. Uh, but that speaks to the, the dishonorableness of the American public, not to the people who served. Yes. And I think Tom Clancy played a, a singular role in, in literature, at least, to elevate, to, to reestablish, and to remind us of, of who these quiet professionals are and that without them, we're all in heat and big trouble. So I think his contributions, both literary and cultural, are significant. And we'll be talking about Tom Clancy many, many, many decades from now. I think I think he'll grow in stature rather than diminish. In, in, in the sea of all these techno thrillers, it's easy to sort of forget him like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Tom Clancy from before. But he's the shoulders upon which all the rest of us are standing. You know, we're basically yes. all now just writing variants of Tom Clancy novels. 
Yeah, and you know, at the time that I was growing up, much much like you said, like the in pop culture and in you know the media, right? Uh, most of the military got portrayed in movies like Stripes or Iron Eagle, where you know the professional military is uh, thwarted by teenage kids. You know. Um, there you go. There you go. Um, to more directly also address your question about the universe of books. So now that we've established, I am not Tom Clancy, <laughs> authoritatively, and and rightly so. Um, the other thing is that as when Mr. Clancy passed away, the estate wanted to continue his legacy, which is fantastic. Uh, so my books are typically smaller, uh, smaller scope, although because I love the genre, I always want to raise the stakes. So I try to have really big stakes, even though it's very few players and uh, hopefully I, I'm not pushing too far. No, but, you know, uh, that's what I love about reading the, these ongoing sagas, and, and also specifically your contribution in the in the the last three books. You know, opening up that that book and seeing the cast of characters is like looking at a list of old friends at this point. And you know, knowing that these are characters in the universe is still getting carried on and still being treated so well and so respectfully is is phenomenal to me as a reader. And I, I really appreciate the work you're doing on it. Well, I appreciate that because really. I, I, you know, I began as a fan before I ever began as a, a writer of this series. And I hold the series in the very highest regard and the characters. Um, I would never do anything intentionally uh, that would do anything to harm the character or the series. I, 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 I love them and respect them too much. Having said that, the challenge for me as a writer and as someone who serves the reading public, how can I keep pushing these characters forward how can I drive them more deeply, get to know them better? How can I put them in new and more interesting situations than we've seen in the past? I don't want to just keep repeating a template or a formula. I don't think that serves the characters or the franchise or the, or the readers very well at all. Now, in, in light of that, you have a tremendous amount of real-world experience that you bring to bear in writing these novels. And you were an acclaimed bestseller even before joining the Clancy Enterprise. Um, with uh, your your drone series, what what inspired the the drone series, and for you to start writing that, and how much of your own work and life got put into it? Well, that's a great question. Um, like you, I'm sure, and and most of your, if not all of your listeners, when the um, second Gulf War happened, and Saddam Hussein was toppled. And then the insurgency rose up and then the whole global war on terror sort of lit up and mm -hmm. spread around the globe. We keep, we see these news reports, you know, we read these articles and we see this word drone or maybe the word predator. Yes. And like everybody else, I sort of had some maybe vague idea of what that was, but one day I decided, I just want to take a look at this. What's, what is this really all about? And it was utterly, utterly fascinating. Uh, to, to talk and think about this technology and to do the research. And in some ways, drones are the absolute cutting edge of the latest technology. But at the same time, uh, the first patent for what you and I would call a drone was issued in 1898 to Nikolai <laughs> Tesla. So at one level, it's the newest and coolest, and yet it's been around for you know, over 100 years. Yes. Because what happened was you had these synergies of different kinds of technologies coming together because uh, right after World War I, for example, the U.S. Army Air Corps had come up with a drone of aircraft. 
you know, decades before you know we actually deployed them. But the war ended, and the you know, department uh, army said we don't need more new aircraft, and so they scrapped the program. But there's lots of stories like that of starts and stops and starts and stops. Um, but really, what what brought the predator into the forefront of our thinking and, and of of deployment and its its potential as both a tactical and a strategic weapon was the Bosnian War, which uh, occurred in the early 90s, uh, part of the whole Yugoslav Wars, which was actually the subject of um, my second novel in the Clancy series, Line of Sight. But make a long story short, um, the Pentagon and just about everybody still rejected drones, but there was the Predator drone, this prototype had been developed, and someone said, let's try something here. Uh, the Serbs had Russian technology, and so NATO pilots didn't want to fly low enough to do surveillance because uh, they'd get shot down. In fact, at least one American aircraft had been shot down. And so because they weren't able to fly low enough, they weren't able to get good surveillance. So someone got the bright idea, let's put a drone over the battlefield and let's live feed the imagery and pump it directly into the Pentagon. And so when the Pentagon chief saw this, and by the way, that was the CIA program, they lost their minds, of course, and said, <laughs> oh, my gosh, we need more of this. Yes. And that was really, in the early 90s, was really the birth of the, the drone. And really, the Predator was, I'd say, the breakthrough. It wasn't the first drone ever, but it was the first one that could actually take off and land a whole bunch of times and not crash and break up and wasn't thrashed by high winds. It was a, the first stable, reliable, um, relatively unbreakable platform that was cheap to produce. And it was the ability to live transmit these images that really woke people up. And then suddenly someone got the bright idea, oh, wait a minute, what if we slung a couple of Hellfire missiles under there? Oh, my word, now you got it. Now you're cooking with gas. Yes. And so that whole thing took off. And so as I dove into that world, what I discovered is that, again, in some ways it's completely familiar to anybody who has ever watched an episode of Star Trek or mm -hmm. you know, read any kind of history of the American Air Force or anything. but. Um, the bottom line is all a drone really is, is a, a robot uh, with software and sensors. And once you do that, then you toss on uh, you know, pylons or you know, some sort of a weapons platform and you have a drone. And then what you discover is, oh, they can fly. Oh, they can crawl on the ground in the form of a tank. Oh, gosh, they can sail on the surface of water. Oh, they can be submarines. And... Um, the more you look at it, even like the Mars rover is technically a drone. So we have drones yes. as far as the surface of Mars and every satellite that we've ever sent out of the galaxy or the, the solar system, all the way down now to these nanobots that we're literally able to control remotely that can do, you know, implant uh, pharmaceuticals into individual cells inside the human body. So microscopic drones all the way up to, you know, aircraft carrier sized vehicles if we wanted to. So they're absolutely amazing. And what's driving this is a couple of things. You know, the software got good enough that you could control these things remotely, but now with AI software coming on faster than any of us care to admit, yes. um, the engineering and the physics make it very clear. Number one, biology doesn't lie, and the weakest part of any combat system is that bag of bones and blood and brain matter called a human being. Uh, we're weak, we're fragile, we get headaches, we get afraid, um, we get injured. Uh, jets, uh, fighter jets have been able to do higher G turns than the human body can endure since at least the 60s. 
So once you take humans out of, say, a combat uh, system, like, say, a jet aircraft, now you can eliminate the need for oxygen. For the pilot, you eliminate all the armor you use to protect them from being shot. No more parachutes. Uh, suddenly, you have a lot less weight. You can do a lot higher G turns. And most importantly, you can start engaging in things like swarm tactics. So imagine you've got a situation where you've probably heard of the uh, um, uh, IBM's Watson that you know beat all of the Jeopardy players and has won all the chess tournaments. Well, Google came up with AlphaGo a couple of years ago. I don't know if you follow that, but basically, Go is considered the most difficult game in human history. There are more potential moves in the game of Go than there are known particles in the universe. And so you can't just plug into a computer all the possible moves and say, pick one and win. Uh, you have, the computer has to think and analyze and anticipate and guess and engage in creativity to play that game. And I won't bore the details of AlphaGo, but they're absolutely amazing. But it boils down to AlphaGo very quickly beat all the best human competitors. And it did it by teaching itself how to play the game. And then it began playing itself. And so AlphaGo exceeded its own abilities. And so I forget what the variant of, of the Go series is now, but no human and no other machine on the planet can touch AlphaGo. So the point is, if Go is the hardest human game and it's a strategy game, and if, if AI can beat that, imagine if you had an AI general with 300 fighter jets versus a human general with 300 pilots making individual decisions. Uh, if the AI general can control every single one of its jets and coordinate all of their attacks far faster than any human being can even think, who do you think is gonna win that, that aerial duel? And so what that means is physics and human anatomy and AI capacity means that we are moving, I'll say at light speed, toward completely automated combat systems and the future generals and admirals of the, of, of the next world war are going to be computers, not human beings. And so digging into the subject matter of drones just absolutely opened up a world to me of possibilities. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No. No, I appreciate that. That's how I ran down that path. Yeah, and so yes. I'm like, I need to talk. I need to start writing about this. So that's, <laughs> that's how I jumped into it. Yeah, now, with, uh, what, with your academic background prior to, to jumping off on, on all the novels, what, what sparked your academic interest in studying um, international relations, conflict, and technology? Well, um, you know, dare I admit it as a writer, um, I was a geeky kid, uh, <laughs> as, as my wife yes. would say, and you still are. Yes, yes. Uh, and, right, and rightly so. Um, I, I was the only child who was raised by older parents. I kind of grew up in front of a television set. Uh, we didn't, I didn't grow up in a literate household. My parents weren't educated, uh, but thank God there was a public library not too far down the road, and even at one point, my uh, mom bought me a used set of encyclopedias from the thrift store that were 20 years old. And I just was always curious and began reading, fell in love particularly with history and military history and then politics in general and just couldn't shake it. And so I garnered some kind of success as I began doing it. And uh, they decided to pay me money to go to school to study what I loved. And I thought, okay, there's not something wrong with this picture, but I'll try it. And 
Yes. It just kept going and, and got the PhD. So I, I love doing it. It was a thrill. It was fun. Um, it's, I guess it'd be like the equivalent would be like if, I, if someone paid you to read comic books, if you're a comic book fan. Yes. Yep. Uh, but I'm, I'm reading JFC Fuller and you know, the, the, the people in military history and, and whatnot. So that's how I got into that. Now, for the benefit of the listening audience, who's uh, significantly younger than Mike and I, an encyclopedia is is a book that's written on paper, <laughs> and there's a collection of them at a place called a library, and it's like Google before Google. Um, and if it wasn't in the encyclopedia, it didn't exist. Much like if you couldn't find it in Google today, it must not be real either. So, all right, <laughs> back to the questions. <laughs> yeah. <Who's- laughs> And I wrote a pterodactyl to the public yes. library too. Well, yes. Now, who was your first writing mentor and how did that relationship come about? Well, that's another great question. Um, I was thinking about that not too long ago. I, 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 I took two different creative writing classes in college. One was like, uh, we had a, like I, think it was a, I want to say it was like a four or six week class. I can't even tell you if I even went to class. I don't remember one thing from that. I don't remember anything that I wrote. And then I took a second class at a community college nearby because my two friends were doing it and they were writers. And I took the class and I just took it because they were taking it and it was interesting, but I didn't really get anything out of it, which wasn't the teacher's fault. It's just that I knew I wasn't a writer or a creative writer, but this guy was like writing, um, short fiction in like Omni magazine. So he was like, Oh my gosh, he's a real oh, writer. Yeah. That's cool. So I was happy to sit there and listen to him. But I, I knew I wasn't a writer. Um, and my two friends kind of were. So uh, I really never had anyone to instruct me on how to write, never sat down with me and walked me through these things. Uh, sidebar, those two friends of mine, I told you about when we did graduate from college, um, somewhere after the ice age, but before global warming, uh, in the eighties, um, these guys literally began writing novels, uh, the two of them. And between the two of them, they wrote about 30. Wow. And so from 1983 to 2010, we talked periodically on the phone and say, Hey, you need to write a novel. And I'd have to remind them periodically, Hey, my two best friends who are losers because you've never published because they wrote them <laughs> and they couldn't sell them. So I knew it was a waste of time. Yeah. But these guys are very, they're very bright. I mean, they're both, they're two of the brightest guys I know. They're, they're both really good writers, but they just couldn't sell them. So I thought, I mean, to be, of course I was ju- messing with them. It wasn't so much the quality of the writing. They just, you know, the publishing world is what it is. They never got mm-hmm. an agent really. And so they could never sell to the publishers. And so the industry never gave them permission. Right. And in 2010, uh, one of my friends who was a computer science professor uh, discovered the interwebs and this thing called Kindle. Uh, suddenly in 2010 it was considered uh, disreputable for a real writer to put on kindle and so my friends were happy to go in there and put their books Mm -hmm. up for nothing and get a couple of hundred star reviews and then charge 99 cents and then after six months work up to 299 and now get your 70 percent royalty take a long story short my two friends are international best-selling authors they're millionaires and they sell more books in a week than most uh, quote unquote real authors do in a lifetime. Yes. Yes. So um, in one sense, they are my mentors because they wrote, they wrote out of their passion. They wrote because they wanted to write. 
And obviously after four, five, six, seven, ten books, they wanted to get published, but it was pretty clear they weren't going to unless a miracle happened, which a miracle did happen. Yes. So when they said, you should write a novel, I thought, okay, I at least see a path that I could at least put it somewhere where someone would read it even if it never got read. So uh, their example was, I guess, my mentorship. And so once I decided to jump into it, I thought, well, I better teach myself how to do this stuff. So I started pulling books off the shelf, reading the how-to books. I forgot very quickly that the how-to doesn't really tell you how to. Right. Um, and, and so I figured out, yeah, so what, what is really story? So I had to develop my own theories of how do stories really work. And uh, that was the best education I could have had because, as you know, if you sit there and listen, it goes one in one ear out the other. But when you have to go out and find it for yourself, pluck mm-hmm. the fruit from the tree, as it were, then you own it. Yes. And I don't make any claim that I'm a terribly great writer, but at least I know when I sit down at, at, the, at, the, at my desk, I have a sense of what it is I'm doing. It's not a mystery. I'm not asking a writing guru to show me the way because the writing gurus don't know the way. You, every artist has to find his or her own way. And there's you know, no two writers write the same way, and they shouldn't because no two writers have the same voice and they can't. And your only goal as a writer is to find your own authentic original voice by stripping away all of the nonsense that we think is writing or that we think is cool or that we think is important or we think the market wants. And just like Hemingway said, just, just tell the truth as you see it. The reason why most writers don't write is because like you're talking before about they're still looking for affirmation. You know, they're, they put something on the page, they put their soul on the page. If someone doesn't love it, they, they, they fall apart and die. Yes. And they have to learn that, no, you're, it, it's your substance and your value that informs your writing, not the other way around. And so you're not writing for affirmation. You're not writing for self-worth. You're writing because you have something to say. And so you need to write and you have to do it with courage and boldness, you know, and, the, and I want also want to say my only rule for writing is you only, I started to with, um, uh, Carl Iglesias, but you only learn to write by writing. That That's the best school in the world is, yes. is you sit down and you do it, period. You know, why books, no one knows why books sell, to be honest with you. No. Every publisher that signs a contract thinks that they have signed a bestseller. Otherwise they wouldn't sign them. But yep. 80% of the books that you see in a bookstore get pulped. So eight, eight times out of 10, even the professional publishers who are really good at this can't pick the winners. So, you know, so I would never, ever chase someone who sold a lot of books. There's lots of ways to sell lots of books. It's almost impossible to write a great book. Yeah. So yeah. strive for that because if you write a great book, brother, the sales will come. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. <laughs> you know, well, and, and that's, you know, you, there are so many people out there trying to, you know, make so much, um, so much money, give so much very specific advice about do's and don'ts and, you know, follow these rules and adhere to this, these genre standards. And you have all of this framework you have to abide by to be commercially successful. And then much like your friends, there are tremendous examples of people who are blowing all that stuff out of the water and finding really fantastic dedicated readership without, um, without having that, you know, commercial approval and ironically doing very commercially well. Yes. And in fact, you know, you fast forward, um, there are a number of published authors, uh, in regular channels who are now walking away from traditional publishing because they have more freedom and more financial reward by mm-hmm. being independent publish uh, writers and, and yes. basically self-publishing. 
Um, that's a mixed game, and, and it comes with its own cost, too, because, like my friends, who are just, I said, two brilliant guys, but they're mm-hmm. writing literally three, four, and five novels a year at yes. 90 to 140,000 words a novel. I mean, they're serious novels. But they have to, because when they put a novel out, their readers consume them within 72 hours, and they want to know where the next one is. And if you don't put it up, they'll find another author who will. Yes. So their their challenge is to be in constant production and, of course, in charge of their own editing and their own uh, artwork and their own social media and everything else. Yep. So, you know, you've got to pay the piper somewhere. Um, but it's never been a better time in the history of the world to be a storyteller. I mean, you and I right now, as soon as we got the phone, we could dash something off, uh, even on our, our iPhones uh, in the word processor, upload it to Kindle in, in 15 minutes and literally – our our short story is available 24/7 365 around the globe. Uh, yeah. That's a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity and for anybody who's not writing because they think they don't have the chance or there isn't a, a door open to them that, you know that's absolutely not true. The, the the world is wide open and there are never 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 enough good stories. There's plenty of rotten ones and bad yes. ones and boring yes. ones. But the world always is craving a great original voice. And, and the cool thing about that is you can't go out in the world and find that voice. That voice is inside of you. You almost have to block out that other noise outside of yourself and find out what that is. And there's a great I, – I think there are very few rules in writing. Um, number one is you can never, ever, ever be boring. Uh, and I'm sure there's something to break that rule at some point, but overall – you have a responsibility to, to entertain. Yes. And that can be a dirty word, but uh, from the Greek, uh, it comes from uh, two words and in the English. To entertain means literally to you know, enter into and, and uh, attain as in attainment. And so you enter into and seize literally the heart of the person that you read. And so an entertainer is not, you know, uh, a monkey on a leash dancing in, in front of a, of a squeeze box, mm-hmm. uh, a true entertainer. Someone has the skill and the ability to enter into someone's heart and in someone's mind and capture it uh, by the skill of their craft and by the quality of, of their voice. And so it's a, it's a, it's a noble profession in some ways. It's a spiritual profession. It's yes. through taking with a great deal of responsibility and to try to reduce all of that to a, you know, 37 point, you know, plot points in a story to do that <laughs> is not going to work. No, no. And that's the, one of the tough things that, you know, I, my, my expectations personally, um, as a, I guess, pre-publication author, um, versus the, I guess the reality that I, that I know today was very, very different. And, you know, I grossly underestimated, um, the relationship, even though as a as a reader, I had felt that relationship, that connection with people's books, but I had never been on the other side trying to provide that. And um, I grossly underestimated how much of your soul as a writer you bear to the world for criticism, um, for accolade, hopefully, for enjoyment. Um, and I underappreciated how intimate that that thing was. And I also overestimated the importance of the formula that you hear and read about and people tell you you have to adhere to when the biggest thing to me that matters more than anything else is story. And 
being entertaining and engaging and engrossing the reader and giving them a chance to, to step outside of their heads and into your hopefully wonderful universe for four or five hours. I, absolutely. And I add one thing because you know, I, I looked, uh, I mean, you've got an amazing uh, library of your own work, and but it also <laughs> requires us to create a great character. Mm-hmm. And if you create a great character that people love and understand, even if they're broken or somehow defective and probably should be because all humans are. Yes. But we, we follow characters that, that we care about. Uh, even a Hannibal Lecter, who's a horrific human being. Yes. We still follow him because he's so fascinating, so interesting. So you have to create characters that readers connect with. And, um, and then the story that flows in your novel or your screenplay or whatever is your character living out their life you know, for the reader, making the choices that they have to make in the way that only that character would make um, as, as things happen to them uh, in the story that you and I contrive. And when you're, when you're composing your stories and trying to put, you know, your unique voice on, all of all of this and imprint it with you know all things Mike. How do you try to balance you know your need for authenticity and realism versus reader expectations versus just fictional fanfare where you get to play a little bit on what's possible? You know that's, that's another really great question, especially for uh, when I'm writing in the Clancy verse and trying. I, I always try to get the technology right. I, I really do. I, I work really hard at it. I Google like crazy. Uh, I might shoot emails off to friends who may or may not have the expertise to, and, and, and have the security clearance that will allow them to communicate <laughs> back with me. Yes. Um, but I, I do my best to get it right. But having said that, uh, and I did this especially in the drone series. Uh, again, I think the only sin you can't commit, the unforgivable sin in writing is, is boredom. It never bored the reader. And a lot of times, you know, the operation of some of these technologies is pretty boring. Um, when you put, a, for example, a Predator drone or now Reaper drones over the battlefield, say, in Iraq, and you're sitting in a trailer and, I don't know, at Creech Air Force Base, mm-hmm. um, it's hours yes. and hours and hours and hours and hours of boredom. So if you were to be realistic, you would have, you know, 500 pages of someone sitting on their keister yes. doing crossword puzzles or whatever because it's just dull. So you got to cut all that stuff out. Like, like. Hitchcock said, a film is life with all the boring parts cut out. So for ease of simplicity, for the sake, I put it this way, the story comes first. I want the story to grab you, to engage you, to keep you. And if I um, break faith with you and I cause you to, to lose the thread of the story, it might be because I was too technical, because I got too deep in the weeds on the technology, or because I got boring, because I gave you an overly technical description of what's going on, even though in reality, that's what it is. So I will always sacrifice reality for the sake of the story. But I try to hold it to intention. And how I bring myself to the story is, I, of course, every character on the page is some prismatic image of our own broken souls um, yes. and experiences. But certainly, um, I try to not think of so much of what this character like an automaton or a robot might do if I program him correctly. I try to really feel what this character is feeling. I try to, you know, and so like we just, uh, this, a lot of this book of uh, Enemy Context, excuse me, is set in, in uh, Poland. 
And mm-hmm. so my wife went there. We always try to go to what I'm writing about just for that level of authenticity. Um, but boy, I tell you what, when I bit into my first um, plum and sour cream pierogi, <laughs> and the eyes rolled in the back of my head and yes. I just about went into a diabetic shock. I'm like, okay, <laughs> pierogies are going into this novel. Yes. Um, so if I'm experiencing things, if I'm angry, if I'm afraid, or if I'm confused, or if I happen to bump into someone at a coffee shop and someone tells me their life story about, you know, growing up in Poland. Uh, yeah, that's, so my life is filtering through some of these things because, you know, that's what I experienced. And I want to share that with my readers. Yeah, that's been one of the things for me and uh, for my, my crime series is very personal, very written very much from from my own experiences in a, a, a conglomeration of uh, different cases, different cops I've worked with, different criminals. The conspiracy series is, is based on, you know, a lot of my own experiences, but obviously I've never been a priest and I've never been an assassin that I'll ever admit. Um, but <laughs> when, when I'm writing scenes and writing stories and kind of like you're describing that pierogi, um, when I'm writing about my personal experiences and especially my inner emotions, my intrinsic fears, the things that um, really, you know, um, really pegged my own emotional meters, I find it um, really difficult to write about. And when as a reader, I'm reading another author's work that makes me experience those same things, um, it, I feel this really incredible connection like, that writer has got to be putting this out from their own soul. And um, when you're composing your works, do you find those scenes, those things to be really tough to do um, to, to get through those words? Um, yeah. And that, uh, I guess since it's just you and I talking, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's we, just two friends. No, one, no one else. Yeah. No one else <laughs> will hear this. Yeah. I mean, if I don't laugh out loud at least once, uh, in my novel because of a joke that someone told that so many didn't wind up a novel that I know that I'm not doing something right. Yeah. And if I am not driven to some deep cathartic emotion at some point in my own novel, I'm not doing something right. So mm-hmm. if my emotion, if my emotions are not engaged in my own writing, certainly the reader's emotions can't be engaged. And so, you know, again, that's back to that level of authenticity. Do I really know who this character is? Do I really know what they're feeling? You know, what am I feeling right now? And uh, if I would be angry at this moment, why am I saying my character wouldn't be angry? And I have to make sure that if the character's not angry and shouldn't be angry, I got to know why. And so uh, it's easy to, how can I say this? Because of all of the books, um, the how-to books out there and the formulas and the advice ma- in magazines. By the way, the way to make a living as a writer is not actually to write. The way to make a living is to write about writing. Yes. Apparently. Um, yeah. there's a whole industry of people that make their living off of not actually producing original creative content, uh, but rather trying to tell people to do that, how to do that. Um, you know, the, the, the professional sort of guru types. And by the yes. way, there are some great writing coaches out there. I'm yes. not yep. denigrating the whole profession, but there's a whole lot of not so great. And so you want to steer away from those. Um, there's a, I heard a line years ago by Carl Iglesias. He's got a, one of the few books I actually really like uh, that is useful for writers. It's called Writing for Emotional Impact. And he was gearing more towards screenwriting, but his overall thesis is exactly correct. And that is, 
you know, people go to the movies or read books uh, because they want an emotional experience. Um, they, they don't want to see how smart you are, uh, although that certainly plays a role. They, they don't want to have more facts thrown down their throats. They got Google for that. But they want to fall in love. They want to laugh out loud. They want to cry. They want to get angry. They want to, you know, feel patriotic. They want to feel terror. They want justice. You know, and so our job as writers is to engage the reader uh, at the emotional level, which means we have to be in tune with our emotions and use our emotions in our writing. And uh, easier said than done. Yes. Because at the end of the day, I think, wait a minute, on page 47 here, I got a plot point, and how come, and what about, and, and if the light turns red, what happens if he turns right? And, that, and you can get very easily lost in the mechanics of writing or in the theories of writing or in the, you know, some of that, um, you know, the, the structures of writing, the structure is important. But then the day, it's about character and emotion and, and focusing on those. It's hard to stay focused. It really is. Now, with all of your experience, all your, um, all your success and everything that you've accomplished in this, what are you still working toward as a, as a person and as an author? What do you want to accomplish in the next five and ten years? As a person, I want to be the person that my dog thinks that I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, and she's a very generous soul. Um, yes. And I would like to be the, the husband that my wife thinks that I am. And she's a very generous soul. Yes. Um, certainly at the personal level, you know, all those things matter. I, I, I want to be a better husband, a better father, a better grandfather. Because, you know, the art only comes out of the heart. If, if, if the heart isn't right, the, the art's not right. And uh, sort of kind of keeping the balance of, of the physical life, the spiritual life, the emotional life, the intellectual life, always growing, always reading, always learning new things. Uh, I'm wrestling with quantum uh, physics right now and quantum mechanics because I'm trying to launch into a, a, a sci-fi novel for the first time and playing with it. Oh, wow. And this thing, this thing is kicking my tail seven days a week left right and center and I love it because I I don't know it and so just really forcing my brain to keep moving forward is part of it um in terms of the Clancy series uh and enemy contact is an example of this I um uh, I really wanted to push myself uh, beyond my own boundaries I, I wanted to get to places I'd never gone before as a writer uh I wanted better, more intense action scenes. I wanted deeper emotions. Uh, I wanted to try to write in the way I would imagine myself as a writer if I were really, really good. So, yes. you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't aim your arrow at the sun, you know, you're not <laughs> going to hit the, uh, the, the target a hundred yards away. So at least aim for the sun. And, uh, and I love working with Tom Colgan, uh, by the way, you know, you mentioned before about, uh, whether it's in uh, our police or military for every one person on the line, you've got people behind the lines that are necessary to make that happen. And yes. Tom is the series editor and without him, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. And he offers great insight and, and guidance at critical junctures. So I'm, I'm so grateful for him because he's so talented and gives me as much freedom as, uh, as I need, which I love. Yes. And so when I was pushing boundaries here, you know, uh, for the most part, he, he let me do that. So every single book I write, I want it to be the best novel I've ever written. And, um, 
I don't want to fall back. I don't want to sit down. I don't want to coast. And, uh, and the hard thing in the, and I'm sure it's even worse in your genre, but uh, in my genre, it, it's a, a good guy with a gun chases down a bad guy with a gun. And it's variations of that. And so to be original and interesting and novel and, and insightful and substantive uh, in, a, in a very formulaic genre is a challenge. And uh, I enjoy trying to meet it, but it is not easy. No. And for you, uh, a policeman, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you've heard the same before, you know, William Goldman, right? In Hollywood, nobody knows nothing. Yes. And uh, I one time actually had a script. I, uh, my manager said it was the, the best um, action script he'd read in 10 years, and it was a Western. And he said, um, I'm handing this off, of course, to someone else because that's not my genre. He said, I'm really excited for you. And about a day, he called me back and said, I can't sell this. I said, why not? He said, well, because there's another Western that's being made right now. <laughs> I said, excuse me? Yeah, I, I, I said, first of all, the Western that's in production, I won't name it, uh, mm -hmm. is sort of mystical uh, sci-fi kind of stuff. It's not a real Western, so it's not even the same thing, number one. Number two, I think there's more than one you know, cop show on TV. I think there's one yes. more than one medical show on TV. I think there's more than one horror movie in the, in the theater now, but he says, oh, I just can't sell it, I can't sell it. And so like every time in the trade, another Western got sold, I would drop that, that agent a note saying, oh, I guess the next one now can't get sold. So I don't know why I, we lost our relationship, but uh, <laughs> so after, like seven, after seven Westerns got made, I just obviously stopped sending them. My point yes. is this, so as challenging as it is to come up with a completely original police procedural or a thriller, it can be done. Again, how? Because no one can write the thriller uh, or the, the, the police procedural that you can write. Mm -hmm. I mean, Gavin, you bring your own voice, your own experience, your own talent, your own slant on things. No one can write a Gavin Reese police procedural. And so suddenly, the, you know, it's not the police procedural, the structure that's the problem. It's me giving myself the freedom to be myself to do a police procedural. Because by the way, there's a million police procedurals and everyone loves them. And then the, the true rea the reality crime shows, which my wife loves, there's a million of those. Oh, say on, on that topic, do you have a, a, a favorite fictional detective or favorite crime show? Oh, that's a great question. You know, that really hasn't been my genre per se. Uh, my favorite procedural or reality crime show is whatever one my wife is watching at the moment <laughs> and I'm sitting next to her. And so whatever she loves, I love. Um, I'm kind of older and old yes. school. Uh, I still remember Columbo was a hoot. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That was just, yeah, talk about an original character. That's why that was such a, a fun series. Yeah, and I used, uh, when I was still training other cops, um, I used Columbo um, as a training tool every time I had a, a new officer, and we would uh, spend time uh, deliberately watching an episode of Columbo, not, you know, the whole episode, but listening to, making him listen to his interview and interrogation techniques, because the way that he set everything up uh, was just absolutely beautiful, and that was the way that I was taught to interrogate an interview. Um, in that very non-confrontational, 
play dumb, pretend you don't know anything, even though you're holding all aces. You got, you know, six aces in your hand in a five card game. Um, play dumb and let people tell their lies and then reveal your aces one at a time. And at the end, Oh, and one more question. And <laughs> I absolutely loved that show. And, and as a professional cop, um, that was such a fantastic tool to have respectful, um, non-confrontational interrogations where people would actually end up uh, admitting and confessing to heinous crimes just because, you know, they're cornered. So yeah, I, I love Columbo. I grew up watching that show. That is just, um, that's absolutely fascinating. And I would, I don't know the series well enough. I would love to know who the writers were. Mm -hmm. I wonder what yes. their experience is, but how fascinating for, you know, art imitates life and life imitates art and, yes. and, they, and to interact like that. That's just, so again, I, that is the power of a writer who is paying attention mm -hmm. and who is intentional. And yeah, it's a formula. Columbus are going to always find his or her, you know, bad guy um, or bad gal. But at the end of the day, a different crime and a great character that you care about that is like no other character you see in TV at the time it was on. Yes. So um, yeah. And, and so Joseph Wamba was probably the yes. first. And I, of course, a former police officer like yourself, I don't think as much time in in the seat as you. Yeah, he was he only had, on for a few. Wasn't he just a? He was uh, he was on uh, LAPD from 1960 to 74 and uh, retired as a okay. Left as a detective sergeant because um, he uh, his writing fame was interfering with his cop work and making life uncomfortable for him, which is why I used the pen name Gavin Reese. And when I got in touch with uh, was fortunate enough to get in touch with him before I, I went down this this publishing road about this very thing, and that was part of the part of the advice and counsel um, from from Sergeant Wamba was uh, uh, taking care of of my cop life. The first time I saw your name, I said to myself, "I got to use that name in a novel. That is a perfect <laughs> novel name." Now I know why. I wish I, I wish I knew where uh, where it came from or how I, I I devised it. It's you know like a lot of other things. It just you know it just hits you one day that you know I wanted a a pen name that was common but not uh, memorable but not totally common. But I also didn't want like you know Jack Reacher that's so overly masculine that is sounds fake. You know? <laughs> and Humperdinck was off the table, so yeah, it was already taken. Already <laughs> hard to spell. Yeah, so. Yeah. And hard to spell. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And, 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 and the, the Bosch series right now on, um, yes. Oh, it's incredible. I, yeah. I really enjoy that. I love LA in any way. And I, so I love LA as a setting and I love the idea, the self-referential idea that here's a policeman who did actually make a lot of money writing police procedurals. And now he lives in this amazing home overlooking, you know, the city that he loves. Yes. And so he's got tons of cash, but he's still a police officer. So I, I just really enjoy that series. Now, keeping uh, all of that last answer in mind, Mike, I've got this this last question for you that I ask of, of all the authors that come on the show, mostly because it's entertaining for me. Um, but God forbid it should come to pass, Mike, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator or a team or a, even a revenge artist would, would you want working the case? And you can pick anybody. I mean, it's your murder after all. Wow. What revenge artist? I kind of like that. <laughs> that's a great that's a great one that's a great one um well you know part of me 
kind of likes the idea of a of a priest who's an assassin because he can forgive the guy just before he whacks him. So I'm I'm, I'm up for that one for sure. Um, boy, um, that's a tough one because you know so many of these characters, right? They always get their person. Yes. And yeah. so I, I want my person got. That's my main thing. Uh, because I'm told that. Uh, mercy is a quality that I, I should embrace more. Um, <laughs> I should probably not wish too much violence uh, wrecked upon a person. Uh, Jack Reacher usually gets their person uh, without too much damage, but uh, oh boy, that's that's a great one. I've never I've never heard that question before. I have to really think about it. Um, I, I'll, I'll go with Columbo because I think. If I'm able to observe after my demise, I would be most entertained by him. Yes. As he's uh, traipsing around, asking his, his questions and fumbling around and, and spilling grape juice on his raincoat. So I'll stick with Columbo. Yeah, Columbo. Or Sherlock, because he's got style. Well, I, I greatly, greatly appreciate your time, Mike. Um, this has been incredibly informative for, for me and I'm sure for the listening audience. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. Uh, again, a great pleasure and honor. Uh, congratulations to you and all of your success. Uh, I, I can't believe that you're doing all that you do and you are also doing an amazing podcast. So I just, uh, my hat's off to you. Thank you for writing and as a writer, sharing your talents and gifts as a writer to other writers, because I think that's part of our responsibilities. Whatever gifts we have, we share it with others. So thank you for that. And I, I wish you much continued success. And to you too, sir. I, I have a very understanding wife who allows all of it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, when people ask me what I do for a living, I, it's the truth. I sit in a room by myself and talk to imaginary people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you have to have an understanding wife uh, to have that kind of a career. And I and uh, my secret to our thirty years of marital success is I was smart enough to marry up. And that's uh, that's my that's my marriage advice too. So that's a freebie on top of the writing advice. Well, I will never be able to top that, so we'll, we'll call the show there. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international best-selling author Mike Madden. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.